0: Well, welcome everybody. My name's Robin Archer and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics. And it's, it's my pleasure to welcome you to our special event on the election and the left. Uh, well, what a dismal time it has been um, for those of us who are on the left. I think uh, it's been dismal not just because of the unanticipated nature of the outcome, not even because of the outcome itself, but somehow because the unusual plastic state of the public mind which followed the global financial crisis feels like it's starting to congeal and harden into something that's quite unsympathetic. Um, But it's going to be our task tonight to explore that result and explore what it means for the left, for the Labor Party, but also the broader left. And we thought what would be good would be to bring together a group of people who combined cephalogical expertise, deep knowledge of the Labor Party itself and its policies and workings, and a broader interest in the extra-parliamentary as well as the parliamentary left tradition. And I think in this panel we have here tonight, we've achieved just that. I want to briefly introduce our three panellists who are going to speak in, in the order I introduce them. We have John Curtis on the end, um, arguably Britain's Preeminent election specialist, certainly one of the preeminent election specialists. He's Professor of Politics at the University of Strathclyde, a Fellow of the British Academy and holds many other distinctions. And he's been a leading figure in the measurement of trends in social attitudes and in electoral behaviour in Britain for uh, some decades. Uh, Most recently, of course, he was responsible, I think it's fair to say, for the exit poll commissioned by the BBC and others, which actually accurately reflected the outcome of the election. Then we have Polly Toynbee sitting right next to me here. Um, she is undoubtedly one of the most influential opinion formers in Britain today. Indeed, some years ago she was, elected, she was uh, nominated as the most influential uh, opinion former. And she um, has a deep knowledge and abiding interest in the Labor Party and matters uh, broadly surrounding it. She's, of course, closely associated with the Guardian newspaper, where her anticipated columns uh, arrive regularly and she's published in addition some nine books, most recently, Cameron's Coup. And our third panellist is Hilary Wainwright, in the middle, um, in green. Um, um, She is one of Britain's leading activist intellectuals, both um, an analyst of and a participant in some of the most important movements that have shaped the British left. And she's also the founding editor of Red Pepper. You might have um, seen some copies um, outside and they're, they're certainly there if you want them. And she's held numerous academic posts, including here at the London School of Economics. And she too has published some very influential books dealing with socialism, feminism and social movements. So um, we're going to start by just hearing from each of our speakers just for for 10 minutes each what they think the meaning of the election is for the left and then there's going to be a period of chair-led discussion, that means I'm going to ask them some questions and then we're going to throw it open to you for questions and discussion and I hope we'll have a a fruitful and interesting evening Um, and at the end um, we can try and sum up. So can I ask you, before we start, to join me in welcoming our panellists today.
1: So, John, if you don't mind. Thanks so much. Thank you for the invitation to talk. Um, I'm going to start... I mean, I realise this is meant about the left more broadly, but I thought I would kind of focus on the Labour Party in particular, not least because... That's the part of the left where angst about the result of the election is currently, I think, greatest. And I want to start with the Blair, what I would call the Blairite analysis of why it all went so wrong, which we've heard quite a lot of on the airwaves in the last few days. And essentially it's an argument that says that the Labour Party had failed to respond to what we're now meant to call aspirational Britain, and that the party needs to be more pro-business, more pro-wealth creation, basically more willing to say to people, it's fine if you want to be better off, we're behind you. Indeed, it's even fine to think you may want to be a little bit better off than your neighbours. We might, to a degree at least, even be willing to be behind that. You've heard the arguments. And the truth is, there is some validity to the Blairite analysis. It's certainly true that one of the signal failures of the five years of opposition, Labour between in 2010-2015, is that it failed to convince the public that indeed it did know how to run the economy, that it had learnt what were thought to be the lessons of the apparent mismanagement of the last five years or so of the last Labour administration. Um, Comrades, for example regularly throughout the last parliament rather than asking people which do you trust more Balls and Miliband versus Cameron and Osborne they asked the two separately and that was very revealing because you know, people's faith in Cameron and Osborne kind of went up and went down during the parliament but Osborne uh, sorry, Balls and Miliband started off at about 20% of people trusting their ability to run the economy at the beginning of the last parliament and it was still no more than 20% at the end of the last parliament, that has to be regarded as a major strategic failure so far as Labour is concerned. And in a sense, it was dramatised on the BBC Question Time session when Ed Miliband, who in many respects was willing to admit what he thought were the mistakes of the previous Labour administration was not willing to accept that perhaps actually the last Labour government was running a fiscal structural deficit and that therefore, although the problem was primarily the result of the fiscal crisis caused by the banks, it was exacerbated by the way in which Labour had been running the fiscal finances in advance. And you heard the gasp from the audience. And that I think the reluctance of Labour... To admit that, and therefore to move on, and just to give people an idea that they had learnt the lessons, and that, however, indeed they could then see a way of running the economy more effectively in the last five years, next five years, than uh, Osborne had done in the previous five years, they weren't given the space to develop that argument. So that's a crucial failure. It's also true. Now, big, big, large inferential leaps here, but within England and Wales at least, it's pretty clear, if you look at the election results, that the places where the swing, that swung to the Tories, as opposed to places that swung to Labour, are those places with relatively high average incomes, places with relatively low levels of unemployment, i.e. that part of England and Wales, which probably to a degree do feel that there's been something of a recovery and therefore did feel something of a thank you note to the Conservative government for what had been achieved so far is at least part of the story. That certainly seems to be the evidence of the geographical pattern. So economic competence, persuading people you know how to run the economy and that indeed persuading people that therefore actually you've got some ideas to how to make people better off is indeed part of the story. But there then comes a very large but. And but number one, of course, is that the biggest losses that Labour suffered. Actually, the reason why it has fewer parliamentary seats now than it did before the 7th of May was because of losses in Scotland. And the losses in Scotland have a fundamental impact on the potential, on the challenge facing Labour Party. Because the truth is, is that once you start going through the arithmetic created by this election... There is no, well, there, it's virtually, the, the way back to Labour, for Labour, to get an overall majority, if it cannot reverse the losses in Scotland, now looks as tough as the challenge facing Cameron to get an overall majority back in 2005, and indeed, back in 2010, and indeed, what would still have been the case in this election, but for the collapse of the Democrats. The Conservatives got an overall majority because of the collapse of the Democrats. That's where their net gains came from. Labour's net losses were caused by Scotland. Um, To give you some idea, if you do the standard arithmetic now, Labour will need a 12-point lead across Great Britain to get an overall majority if it doesn't reverse the losses in Scotland. And I would suggest to you that there is no way back for the Labour Party unless it adopts a strategy that not only deals with what might be thought to be the views of aspirational voters in England, but they don't also take into account the views of voters in Scotland. And what we know about Scotland is that it's not the case that the reason why the Labour Party lost ground to the SNP was because it was a wee bit too lefty and maybe a little bit kind of at risk of, you know, uh, um, uh, frightening people in the heather. The brutal truth is the people who have switched from Labour to the SNP are on the left, and they regard the SNP as being on the left. The Labour Party, twice as many people now in Scotland regard the Labour regard the SNP as a party that's in favour of greater equality than they do the Labour Party. So, therefore, the idea that all the Labour Party has to do is to tack a little bit to, to the centre is clearly wrong, because that will not deal with Labour's um, Scottish problem and there is then of course another important and perhaps somewhat uncomfortable fact and that is where did UKIP do less well do do best UKIP did best in working class less well off Britain the increase in UKIP support is very clearly related to average levels of income um, uh, average average levels of unemployment the UKIP phenomenon is again UKIP were also often getting people who are wanting to complain about the pain of the, of the economic situation, as well as those who are complaining about immigration. And that's arguably a market the Labour Party should be in, but it wasn't getting. Now, how do you join these two things together? How do you join together the failure in England and Wales and the failure in Scotland, given that apparently these are two different kinds of failures? And can I suggest to you they, however, are surrounded by a common problem? Labour's problem in Scotland and the reason why being in hot with the Tories during the referendum, the reason why coming out of the referendum the party all of a sudden lost its support, at least for Westminster, is that for the last 15 years, ever since the advent of devolution, the Labour Party has not had a story to tell about the kind of Scotland it wanted to create. It had never, ever succeeded in coming up with a policy platform that looked like anything other than a pale limitation of what the party was saying south of the border. 2007, for example, what was Jack McConnell's principal idea? It was that you should increase the school leaving age uh, from 15 to, uh, from 16 up to 18. That was currently the policy being pursued by the UK Labour government south of the border. There was nothing in the way of time. Indeed, more broadly, the major mistake Labour Party made about devolution north of the border is that they thought that what people in Scotland wanted was a lovely partnership between the Labour government in London and the Labour government in Edinburgh. No, they don't. What they want is somebody standing up vociferously, and uh, and obviously for Scotland's interest within the framework of the UK. Boris Johnson's got it. He stands up for London. Uh, Roger Morgan got it. He stood up for Wales. But the Scottish Labour Party never got it. That territory beats um, a party in these, these kinds of situations. So there was no vision, no story. In contrast, during the referendum, the SNP were able to tell people a story of the kind of Scotland they wanted to create. And everybody in Scotland now understands what kind of country the Labour Party, the, the, the s p wants to create. South of the border. What again, what undoubtedly was one of Ed Miliband's signal failures. There was no clear statement, no clear slogan, no clear simple message that people could grab into and say, aha, that's what the Labour Party is about now. We had predators and producers we had responsible capitalism we had one nation labor they, they I mean they had people like Polly in, in, in excitement for days and it was forgotten within weeks never ever and you know their party had I mean where was the labor slogan in the last election I don't think there was one was there seriously so the truth is therefore the electorate have very little idea of what was the kind of Britain that the Labour Party wanted to create. And so therefore, again, that's the common issue. So it seems to me what the Labour Party has to think about now is to think about the kind of country it wants to create to set out that vision. But obviously it has to be a vision that not only accommodates the interests of England and Wales, but also accommodates the interests of Scotland. And, of course, the really tough bit that is facing a challenge to all politicians is setting up a vision that actually might be able to get a buy-in to on both sides of the border. And I don't, I, I don't uh, deny that that particular uh, task is a pretty difficult one indeed.
2: John, that was that was a terrific uh, coverage of, of, of where we are. I'd looked forward to this day as a double Milliband celebration. I thought we would be whooping at the name of Milliband Jr. Um, and I'm very sorry that we're not. Uh, as Robin said, it has been a dreadful, dreadful few days. Uh, absolute despair wherever I go. Uh, MPs in utter mourning and shock. It's not, of course, that Labour expected to romp home. They were only really hoping to sidle into government with a uh, SNP tacit backing uh, and an awful lot of wrangling about whether they were legitimate or not. So it's not exactly as if anybody was expecting a a, a -a cock-a-hoop easy ride. But nevertheless, the actual result did come as a frightful, terrible shock, and I don't think we'll ever quite feel the same about the polls again. Uh, John and I will be talking about that and I'm sure we'll (laughs) talk more about that Uh, how how to look at polls how to think about polls so where now? you're hearing at once as John said um, quick back to the centre ground I'm not quite sure where the centre ground is where is that magic piece of turf if you knew where it was and what it was and who was standing on it you might be able to know how to go there But I don't think it's as simple as that. I think you make your own ground in an election, you plant your flag, and if you're strong enough and if it's a good enough policy prospectus uh, and if you... Are confident enough and trusted enough people will gather around it so i think sort of going around with a metal detector looking for it is maybe uh not quite the right way forward let alone appealing to polls or focus groups to find it because that doesn't seem to uh help very much either uh, so what do we do as john said you know we've got uh, heading uh north in scotland uh labor lost to to the left uh, UKIP in its heartlands, essentially lost to the right, though it's a bit more complicated about exactly what those working-class votes are, but nevertheless, they were very happy to go quite far right. Uh, Greens, a protest party, um, spread very thin, so not much use, because they don't have a, very much of a geographic uh, entity to, to give them any, any electoral heft. Um, how on earth do you corral all of that? And turn it into something winnable next time. Uh, and as John said, when you need to be 12 points ahead, if you're still losing Scotland, um, that's a pretty, a pretty horrendous task. But by no means impossible. Tides turn. You hit the right flow at the right moment. And I don't think one should underestimate quite how hard this task was. I can remember Ed Miliband and those around him saying, as soon as they, as soon as he'd won the uh, selection as leader, this is the toughest thing you could possibly do. We've been in power for 13 years. We've been thrown out after a a terrible global crash, which throughout ejected just about every single leader of every every single government in every country. Um, It wasn't just, it's not just labor in, in England that's been blamed, whoever was in power at the time got blamed. Um, to come back after one term is very difficult. Governments nearly always get given two goes and it takes a while to forget the reason why you threw the other lot out last time. So it was always uh, a big, big ask, which is a reason, again, not to get overly depressed. If I think about how Labour felt in the 80s that nothing would ever get it back again. The pendulum does swing. Uh, Times do change. However, there's no denying that there was a sharp swing to the right in England and Wales. Uh, Something like, you know, a 10% gap if you take in the UKIP right-leaning, in England and Wales, the UKIP right-leaning voters together with the uh, Tory voters. And if we'd had PR, it wouldn't have come out much better either so that doesn't you know that's certainly not a panacea for the left it may be the right thing to do in itself for a lot of other reasons and for the maybe you know arrival of new parties on the scene but it wouldn't change the broad picture of things as they stand at the moment what did we learn I think we learned that Ed Miliband was a very decent a uh, thoroughly decent and honest man who thought very hard and produced what i thought was a good program but you also learn that connecting with the voters is extraordinarily important and we may wish we didn't have a presidential system but effectively we do when it comes to election time and indeed well beforehand people who connect very little with politics just about connect with the leaders of each party and give them a thumbs up and a thumbs down and it's very and it's very very important. Uh, To have that trust in a leader, there's no good dismissing it, saying, well, you know, Attlee got away with, uh, you know, with being a fantastically good prime minister and he wouldn't have made it in the television age. I think Labour had a very good platform and I think we should be very wary of those who say... Well, that one failed. We've got to find something totally different. And the reasons it failed were, were many and complex. I've already given some of the, the, the background reasons. This was, not, this was not the 1983 suicide note all over again that suddenly people like Mandelson seem to be suggesting. It was, in fact, very like Blair's 97 uh, programme. You know, he had a two-year freeze that was absolutely ruthless, spending sank to lower than it had been in years and years and years. In those two years, it was tough. Uh, I think Miliband and Balls produced, whatever you think about it, they produced a very tough uh, fiscal framework. They were, you know, there was going to be a a cap on welfare. There was going to be absolute deficit reduction by the end of the parliament. That's only two years later than the government were proposing. Uh, You couldn't accuse them of being lax. Um... And at the same time, I think that uh, they picked on the big issues of our time. Inequality is a really important issue of our time, so much so that the Davos World Economic Forum uh, last year picked it as the most important economic issue, that if there aren't people with any money to spend, capitalism in the end eats itself up, and you don't just have to be Thomas Piketty to say so. Um, Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, himself has said that he regards inequality, perpetual low pay, as as uh, one of the great uh, uh, the, the great problem, economic problem of our time. That's an economic problem, not a social problem. I think there is real genuine public fear of uh, of the power of corporations who don't take pay taxes and do dominate democracy. Um, I think people are very indignant at low pay and very worried, and they look at their children and their grandchildren and see how many, even with good qualifications, (laughs) look destined to be low paid, possibly forever. I think they look at the high benefit bill. And Labour was right to say we have to go to the root causes of that, which is low pay. We must get pay up, which is high rents and high property values, which means housing benefit uh, soars through the roof. And it is taxpayers who end up picking up that bill. But somehow the message didn't get out there because... The monstrous na- nature of our press meant that when anybody thought about benefits, they thought about Benefit Street, which is on again just now, in case you wish to see it, um, which picks up grotesque cases. The Daily Mail's only got to have one picture of a large family of ten children living in temporary accommodation in some mansion in Kensington. It stays in people's minds, mar- thousands, hundreds of thousands of people's mind, for ten years as the image of someone on benefits. Uh, And I think, um, you know, Labour always does face up to a monstrous press, but I think what we saw this time, that wall of sound, even the Financial Times and the Independent as well, uh, all of one voice, was more threatening, more intimidating, more raucous, more bullying... Um, and more with a sense of this is run by a handful of highly rich, highly entitled people, driving people in one direction for the sake of the interests of a Murdoch, of the Barclay brothers on their island on Sark, of Lord Rothermere, who's a non-Dom himself. Much worse is to come, of course. We're going to get boundary changes, which will make it much, much tougher. Um, You know, I think there are real questions as to whether Labour can construct... A manifesto that reaches from Glasgow to the Isle of Wight and embraces everybody. Um, but I do think the answer is not lurching to left or right, but keeping the nerve and um, realizing that this government is going to be in serious trouble. If it, if it begins to stick to its program, which it looks from the first outings today and yesterday as if it certainly will, you know, there's the referendum battle which may well split that party. Uh, Right down the middle. There are 12 billion cuts in benefits, which sounds a popular policy when people are asked in general, but when they have particulars, like the bedroom tax, very unpopular. When people see what it actually means, that it's not about layabouts on the dole, uh, but it's about people like them having their tax credits and housing benefit cut, I think it's very doubtful that can be done and still keep popular support. 40% cuts in local government, a million more public sector jobs to be lost. Uh, The NHS crisis will certainly worsen, even if they find this mystery 8 billion, it's not nearly enough, and so on. So I think um, keeping the nerve and not lurching right or left will be very important, and um, we should not worry about the polls and the focus groups, but uh, go much more on the pricking of our thumbs, because a lot of us actually knew this didn't feel quite right, but we didn't dare write, The Tories are doing better than they say because the polls were telling us otherwise. Thank you. Well,
3: thanks. John, and Polly, for setting the scene so brilliantly, and it's great to be here with all of you. you. Everybody looks so intense, and so you know. And I feel so. I feel very conversational. I don't have a great you know answer, but I really want to hear from you. Uh, I think, like many of you, and like Polly, I, I hope. I kind of imagined this would be a, a celebration when I said yes, and I do feel very much stopped in my tracks. It wasn't that I thought there'd be a, a kind of new dawn on the eighth. You know, completely you know the dawning of a new society, but I felt there'd be some real openings in the wall through which we could climb onto a new terrain and there'd be new possibilities, new openings. You know, it's like sort of running towards a hedge where you could see openings and then then you find a you know, total wall and it's a spiked wall. I mean, I think we're, seeing, we're going to see a real attempt to kind of triumphantly complete the Thatcherite right. Revolution. So it, it will be the Nicholas Ridley plan for local government, reducing local government to basically being a sort of subcontracting hub, you know, the reduction of massive reduction of benefits and, and, and so on. So I think it's really important to have a, a, a sort of notion that we're not going to wait and simply prepare for the next election we have to start resisting now whether in parliament uh, or outside we have to propose and also something I want to say but later we have to exemplify we have to experiment um, and using whatever resources we have to do so and I want to um, uh, this might sound slightly controversial but as a framework for thinking about this I want to kind of Critically unpack this notion of aspiration because it really pissed me off. The, you know, the next day to see all this, you know, Mandelson, you know, back to business as you know, pro-business, as if that's what aspiration, as if aspiration is only about that. I mean, I've just moved to to from Islington, maybe super aspirational, to Hackney, which is meant to be well, it is actually aspirational too, but it's also very very neighbourly. You know, the day I moved, my neighbour came round and said. I'm Sharon at 62, how can I help? Over Easter, she and her other neighbours cooked, you know, like fish on Friday and and a big meal. They're all Caribbean Catholics. A a, a, a sort of big meal of, you know... um, rice and beans and chicken and stuff all to share on the street and and she was so there's a whole sort of communalism but also she you know i was talking to her yesterday with all this aspirational stuff ringing in my mind uh dissonantly because she was saying how she was complaining about her son who you know never it seems to be getting a job etc but how her daughters she's brought them up you know to to be career women she said i don't want to see them lying around having babies they've got to be you know they've got to be career women and she was super super aspirational and you know wanting that the same of her son and yet at the same time you know very very communal and it seems you know this whole idea that aspiration is automatically a code word which is what it's become for moving to the centre, being pro-business, pro-market, pro-individual. This sort of whole idea of individualism separate from society. So on the one hand you've got um, you know, there's no such thing as society. And Thatcher, and, and on the other hand, Mandel—not on the other hand, but together, Mandelson saying, "I'm relaxed about the filthy rich, being filthy rich and relaxed about inequality." Are a completely individual notion of aspiration, but an assumption that that is the only idea that is aspiration, and anything that's about social, communal state you know is is anti-aspirational but you know if you think who said the fulfillment of all is a condition for the fulfillment of each that was Karl Marx and from 56 onwards well also thinking of William Morris you know he was constantly talking about you know individual enrichment and realization the sort of um, you know creation of beauty and and the, the 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 involvement in useful labor rather than useless toil that the aim of socialism is that kind of individual realization a sort of social individualism and if you think of all the people that ralph Miliband worked with in socialist register ep thompson Um, Ralph himself their whole thinking was about you know socialism being about the the realization of the individual through the social that's in a way what feminism was about it was about you know we 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 couldn't we couldn't fight oppression uh, uh, and suppression and subordination of ourselves as individuals without a a social movement so a kind of social social individualism was fundamental to our Thinking and then, if you think about this, think about this election and Scotland. You know what was the movement for Scottish independence, which you know so rejuvenated the SNP and and really remade it. You know, I think that 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 John's right that the SNP did become a left party, but this wasn't really of its own making. It was because there was an incredible movement, which well, many of you probably went up there or have relations there, and it was a real remaking of Scotland the the referendum became this catalyst to a a kind of movement about what kind of society do we want and it became a very very uh, new and interesting kind of it was a kind of socially individual kind of movement where everybody was thinking about their futures but in a new kind of society so it was this very aspirational social movement Uh, and, and that's in a way what has kind of won the uh, election for the SNP um, because they responded to that became a kind of a electoral voice to it whereas Labour didn't even really recognise they couldn't recognise it because in a way their thinking is so sort of polarised between that sort of either you're a state socialist or you're pro-market that's in a way Blair's sort of you know flip from a sort of traditional left to kind of a pro-market sort of equating aspiration with the market completely misses out this This sort of, if you like, new left, which Ralph particularly epitomized, but which has got many, many more sort of modern and and, and distinctive forms, which wouldn't necessarily always call themselves left. I mean, the radical independence movement didn't necessarily define itself wherever it went as left. But it was emancipatory, it was, it, was, it was aspirational, it was liberatory, but it was in, in a social, all the time seeing the social constraints on that, that emancipation, that liberation, and therefore fighting for a different kind of government. So applying those thoughts to the election, it seems that you know, what was missing was not so much an aspirational strategy, but in a way um, a thinking about the conditions for aspiration beyond the economic, in a sense... The, the, the response, the Labour Party's response in England to the SNP, which is maybe what led particularly to the kind of move for so many people, working class people to UKIP, was that it, instead of – well, what it did was really to echo the demonisation of the SNP, which is very contradictory. Because if you believe in union, you know, you'd thought you'd sort of listen to the people – With whom you're trying to unite or remain united, and have some respect for their opinion, but more fundamentally, if you're going to um, bring with you the English, then there needs to be a story—not a story. I don't like this constant reference to stories and narratives, but I mean there needs to be an idea, a vision, of you know a different kind of England, a different way to govern. That that seemed to be. What was missing, a different kind of state and a different kind of a different kind of England. So that an England in which the Labour Party really did stand up for for Manchester, for Tyneside, for for Leeds, for Wakefield, you know, Birmingham. I don't know about Birmingham, but but anyway, for, for, for the cities and regions. That whole idea I know it's been talked about, but it's not been really taken on board, really sort of pushed through. And in a sense, although you know some Labour leaders, like perhaps John Smith in particular, did have an understanding of constitutional reform. And in a way, the the terms constitutional reform aren't the way to put it. It's got to be about government, self-government, democratic government. But that, in a way, wasn't really there. And I think if there had been that said earlier, maybe it's not something you can say at the end of the campaign. It has to be built into uh, an economic, you know, integrated with a a different kind of economics, a different kind of understanding of, of wealth creation. Um, then And also, that, I think that involves a, a different thinking about the state, because the state, you know, I, I've been working with a lot of trade unionists who've been fighting privatization, but with a rejection of the status quo, as they, they say, the status quo is not an option. We need, to, we need to democratize and improve the public sector. And when I've talked to these trade unions, they are... In a way, they are, you could say, almost entrepreneurial. They're they're saying that the union is a way of bringing together people's knowledge, the knowledge of frontline workers with the knowledge of communities about how those services can be improved. And in a way, if the the Labour Party could have been a voice for that sort of social aspirational strategy, I think that there there could be more success. So, OK, what do we think about doing now? Because I'm... a. Draw, draw these remarks to a close um, I think that it's we, in a way we, we can learn from Scotland and put our emphasis on building a movement in a way I, I, I don't focus so much on the Labour Party I've not been in it but I have I have to say worked for it at, at the GLC but even there crucial to that Transformation that we did achieve to a degree, which is partly why Thatcher was so hostile to it, um, was the fact that we were all the time connected to a movement that was bringing about cultural and actual change in the here and now. Whether it's you know the creation of alternative forms of economics, you know cooperatives and so <coughs> on, and also you know again drawing from Hackney, you can see a real sort of conflict that the left needs to be part of between all these social enterprises, these sort of ethically driven cooperatives and small partnerships and so on and on the other hand the sort of big corporations the tescos and so on attempting to take over that sort of land appropriate those kinds of markets and in a way we need to be recognizing that sort of social it's not so much it's um, sort of nice capitalism. It's, it's different. It's a kind of social, um, almost a sort of social entrepreneurship that's that's also political. That's got a different vision. That's that's aspirational. So in a way, I think we need a almost an alliance of the truly aspirational politicians. And that's where I'd include the SNP and Caroline Lucas and, and many of the Greens, who are kind of in a way ecologically aspirational. They want a different kind of planet, a, a different kind of. Um, the conditions for survival that can be also enjoyable and aesthetically and and, and hedonistically pleasing uh, and, and plied. but an alliance with all those younger people, particularly who are taking direct action to achieve change now. I mean, what what's not what's what could be more aspirational than saying we can't wait for government. We must take direct action. We must you know occupy houses that that we feel we have a right to because you know that's where we live that's where we want to make our lives that's where we aspire to 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 build a family um so with that kind of direct action sort of mentality that that's there at the center of our economy with you know free software and file sharing and that whole approach to music so i think we've got to think about building a movement that is then achieving the cultural changes that that can find electoral expression in ways that we can't predict now because we've got to get political reform that can allow some kind of proportional um, system. Uh, But now we can, we we have got, without being too optimistic, because I don't, to be honest, feel hugely optimistic, but I do think there are all these these things going on that that have now got to sort of sharpen up and actually come together because we are going to be facing a really brutal uh, government over the next... Five, 20,
0: five years, not for twenty. Sorry. Mm. <laughs> well, as I said, I now want to just uh, pose um, some questions to our panel um, myself. Um, I'm going to just start with John, and then and then move through. Um, John, you spoke about the Blairite strategy, and as, you know, students of political science in the audience will know, at the centre of that strategy was a a centre-seeking approach, find the centre of public opinion and try to occupy it. And it's often been said that what was distinctive about Ed Miliband's leadership was that he was moving towards a sort of preference-shaping approach, one in which you tried to move where the centre of public opinion was and then occupy that position. And it was thought that because of the global financial crisis, there was some more potential for that. I just wonder if you could comment briefly on what you think the relative prospects for those strategies are, and in particular, does the preference-shaping approach have um, some potential in the current environment?
1: Um, Well, let me first of all um, um, unpick the assumptions behind the Blairite strategy. Because certainly a lot of the work that I've done on British social attitudes uh, led me to the conclusion that the Blairite strategy was not a centre-seeking approach. It was actually an approach that proved to be a preference-shaping mm-hmm. approach because it moved, people, it moved people further to the right. And I've, I have long argued that uh, Tony Blair achieved what Margaret Thatcher wanted to do and failed. Tony, uh, Ma- Margaret Thatcher argued... Sorry, that's, that's not partisan point. It's just pure social science, all right. Um, uh, Margaret, Margaret, Margaret Thatcher uh, l- uh, argued that you know she couldn't. It wasn't wasn't sufficient just simply to change public policy. You need to change under. And partly what Hillary is saying here, you need to change underlying values. She wanted to move values towards the right. She failed. Um, public opinion in the UK did not move to the right under Thatcher. But under Blair, it did. And in particular, above all, what Blair managed to influence is actually the views of Labour Party supporters. Labour, the views of Labour supporters themselves tended to move to the right on issues like um, uh, economic inequality. And, of course, also, I mean, the truth is also that the period during which the movement towards a much harsher approach towards welfare, which has characterized much of this, uh, the 21st century, is also, can, you can date back to the Blair government. Because that was the first, I mean, part, part, partly, of course, because one of the critiques, that the Labour Party had of the, of, of the Thatcher government was that they wasted too much money on welfare. That you know, they, they allowed unemployment to mushroom the welfare, bill, the, the welfare bill, mushroomed as a result, and that's where a lot of the North Sea oil revenues went. Uh, they said, no, we don't want to spend money on that. We want to spend money on uh, things that will promote economic growth. So, but that did therefore mean you create, began to create a climate with the idea of welfare to work, and welfare are becoming more less popular, so number one is blairism was it uh, was, was successful as a preference shaping approach, or even though it, it claimed that 's not wanted to be. And in fact, my, my own personal view is that Blair was never a focus group person. He was an ideological p- politician who had a certain view of the world and who then claimed that the view that the world is like what he wanted it to be. And the truth is, I think, you know, you, you see this with all election defeats. Whenever a party loses, immediately people say, aha, but if you'd looked at the world in the way that I look at the world, then things would have been OK. And it tells you much more about them than it does anything about what might or might not be responsible for a party's defeat. So you need, you, you need, you need to bear that in mind. Um, now, that said, I mean, I think the truth is that the, 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 when British Social Attitudes tried to analyse what had happened by um, both doing the five years of the coalition and, you know, in a sense, therefore, the seven years since the, um, since the financial crash... I mean, social attitudes haven't changed a great deal during this period. I mean, we 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 stopped becoming yet more anti-welfare, but we didn't become more pro-welfare. We stopped moving to the right, but we didn't start moving back towards the left. Um, and certainly, you know, because um, and, and despite the cuts, We've just begun a little bit to say, you know what, we're beginning to worry a little bit about the state of public services. But the truth is, party did such a brilliant job at improving public services that um, people long ago stopped saying, oh, we need more money spending on it and moved back towards very much the position they were in the 1980s of being more concerned about taxation. Now they've moved back a bit, but not that much. So, you know, there hasn't been a major reaction to uh, the financial crash. What... And I think perhaps where there might be room for preference shaping, and you can see this in various sections of the electorate, is the electorate is concerned about inequality. If you ask people, is there too much inequality in a variety of ways, you'll usually get a majority in favour. Ask them, should the government do something about it, and support starts to fall away. And I think, therefore, there is a question about... Well, there are two approaches, to to reactions to that. One reaction which you can actually see in some sections of, of of the Conservative Party, is nudge the private sector to coughing up more. And that's what minimum wage legislation, et cetera, is all about. Um, the other approach is to, is to say to people, well, look, you know, actually, you think there's a problem here. The only way of solving this problem is for the state to do more. Um, those things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, but those are the two possible reactions. So I don't think Ed... I mean, I, I think Ed, insofar as Ed thought, uh, attitudes had moved back to the left, he was wrong... Did succeed, Ed succeed in, in, in uh, shaping people's opinions? No, not least about himself. Um, and to that extent, at least the last five years have been a period of stasis so far as the, map is, the ideological map has been, is concerned. Okay, just very quickly. Yes, yeah. I'd
2: like to come in on that because I think uh, when you look at British social attitudes, you know, w- when you had uh, tremendous screwing down of public spending in the Tory years, you got a greater public attitude, uh, a, a, a desire for more welfare spending and more public service spending. Um, during the Blair years, we should remember, you know, the idea that he was somehow fin- finishing Thatcher's work. Uh, there was huge spending on tax credits to top up the, the pay and the conditions of the low paid. A million fewer children in... You look at John Hill's, uh, of this great establishment, John Hill's work, analysing the, the social and, uh, effect and equality effects of the Labour government and this government. Uh, you know, a million fewer children in poverty, a million fewer poor pensioners, Sure start, free nurseries. I mean, a, a huge expansion of uh, spending on health that uh, obliterated waiting lists that had been there since the beginning of the NHS. Enormous public spending on schools, on hospitals, uh, on public spaces, and the way everything felt. Public squalor was intense in, the, in 1997. So if people after that gradually began, afterwards f- took them a long time to feel... We need more spending. The other thing is, uh, then you know, it's not surprising because Blair had done so much. The idea that he simply somehow continued Thatcher, I mean, that really, in any possible analysis of the spending patterns and what he spent on, totally, I think, not true. I think also, if you look at um, what happened with the crash... It kind of broke that British social attitudes pattern where the pendulum went, you have a mean Tory government, everybody wants to spend a bit more, you have a generous (coughs) Labour government, everybody goes, oops, spending a bit too much. Uh, The crash broke that, there is no money, was a strong sentiment where people said, you know what, I know it's hard, we've all got to tighten our belts, haven't we? That includes the public sector, it includes benefit and everything else. It sort of froze opinion in a way that, broke that pattern. Okay. And the question is whether we can get it yeah, going But
1: it's, again. But it's also arguably because the Conservatives made sure they were still spending money on the aspects of public spending that are popular. You also have to well. bear that in mind.
0: OK, now I'm in danger of losing control yeah. of my panel, but I, I, must, <laughs> <laughs> I must give Hillary just a very no, short I time. Just, I just wanted um?
3: to, to slightly contradict Polly. I don't like to contradict, but I will. About, this, about, about Blair and Thatcher, because okay, he's spending money on public services, but at the same time... That money was spent more and more on private companies doing work for the public sector. I mean, he denigrated the public sector all the time. I mean, he denigrated public service workers hugely, you know, to a point where they were seriously dem- demoralized. Uh, and, and he also just fell into this trap of, you know, the pub- public sector is bureaucratic and the private sector is, you know, innovative.
2: I agree with that. Absolutely and, I agree and with that. that. At the
3: same time I agree, but it was, was tiny. Unions. You know,
2: the little, bit of, uh, in, you know the, the little bit of privatization of the health service, of which was largely targeted at special units to cut private practice of the long waiting lists of particular eye surgeons, knee surgeons, hip surgeons who hated it, um, was still very small. I think it was wrong. I think his rhetoric was wrong. But nevertheless, there was a great expansion of the public sector with public sector workers during those years, and one shouldn't somehow you know, deny that that was the case.
0: OK. So, um, look, the question was about preferences, just to be clear if people are thinking about it, not the policies of the government, not what they did, but the preferences. I've got a question for you now, um, Polly, I mean, you were saying that there shouldn't be a lurch to the left or a lurch to the right, and and maybe that's right, maybe it's not right, but underlying that is the assumption that there's a left-right spectrum on which we can talk this way, and yet surely one of the main things that happened in the election was that there was a cross-cutting cleavage, one that was largely about nations, about borders, about membership, which in many cases trumped the politics of living standards of austerity, of well-being, And I wanted you to just offer some comments. I mean, you you, you said that there was a genuine fear of the power of corporations, and surely of banks, as many opinion polls show us, and yet that was often trumped. Now, what is it that the left, and more specifically the Labour Party, can do about that, and do you have any comments on that shift of spectrums rather than left and right?
2: I think you put your finger on it. I think what Labour failed to do was to get the emotional buy-in Uh, ...an emotional engagement that you saw in Scotland with a whoosh of passion. I mean, I don't know where nationalist passion goes, and I have my suspicions of it. You know, Nicola Sturgeon, absolutely the height of honeymoon at the moment. What we know about Scottish opinion, unless I'm wildly wrong about those, unless it's changed a lot is that when it comes to willingness to pay taxes, not an awful lot more, on the whole, willing to pay tax. They may think of themselves as stronger social democrats, but they've had the ability to raise 3p of income tax for years, and they've never dared raise one single extra penny in Scotland. The SNP have been very cautious. It's not clear to me that that, that there is a huge... Willingness to share more in this kind of way in Scotland than perhaps in England and Wales. We'll see. I hope I'm wrong. I would love it to become Sweden, uh, particularly Sweden as was. It would be great. Um, but I just have my doubts, and I'd like to hear hear John's feeling on that. Instead of which, we have identity politics. We are Scots. Or we are anti-immigration in UKIP tense, sense, far outweighing class and immigration, and class and... Uh, and, and, and uh, left-right it for some people some of the time, and that w- quite worries me. But I do think you have to do that magic thing of getting the economics right, the policies right, and then an emotional engagement and buy-in, which I don't think Labour begun to get.
0: Okay, thanks. And uh, just a, now a question for, for Hillary. I mean, I, I think it was fascinating what you were saying about um, aspiration and the different possible meanings of it. Um, but it struck me while you were talking that, in a sense, many voters were cynical about any aspiration and that the sort of dominant term that might be used to describe these voters was distrust. I mean, there was distrust of authority, of all authority, and it's spread throughout our society in many ways, but especially of the authority of the political leadership of the leadership of political institutions. And it seems to me that possibly part of the explanation for the outcome was who was best able to channel that distrust rather than who was better able to articulate aspirations. So I just wonder what your comment on that might be. I mean, to illustrate perhaps the the, the SNP threat is a huge trumped-up oh my goodness, what might happen, distrust threat, which was pulled out of the bag by my countrymen, I'm afraid to admit. Um, but it's not really about aspirations, it's about distrust.
3: Yes, I mean, I, no, I, I agree with you to to the extent that actually the only way that, that the Labour Party could have overcome that was, by, was actually by trying to turn the tables and build aspiration, build expectations, but also build... Um, a sort of sense of self-confidence that, that people themselves could um, do, something, do something do <laughs> <I> should talk <laughs> something. to the audience <laughs> 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 could, could do something different so in a way it, the idea of responding to this you know SNP d- demonization by you know, trying to express the possibility of a movement in England um, and supporting the movement in Wales for self-determination would be to kind of you know, infuse aspiration into, in, you know, give a lead, give an aspirational lead, but of a kind of, <laughs> of a collective kind, one that's about creating a, um, a different way of governing that provided people with a framework for self-government and for, for democracy. I mean, in a way, this distrust and this sort of anti-aspirational consciousness is a result of, you know, forty, since sort of 40 years of, of kind of. Of domination, of, of suppression of, you know, if you think about what's happened to local government, which, I don't know, I don't want to romanticise you know, municipal socialism or, or, or even, you know, liberal localism, but I mean, local government um, and also the associated sort of civic activity around it, sort of tenants, associations and all these, you know, were, was an important source of people um, you know, gaining some citizens' sort of capacity, you know. I mean, Things like Shaw Start had an element of that. But all that has been completely destroyed. I mean, the destruction of local government is a, just an outrage. And, and I don't think the Labour Party really... You know, they were almost on the defensive. They were sort of... You know, they were reacting to this uh, Th- Thatcherite Cameron agenda of, you know, attacking the state all the time. And because they hadn't got a confident vision of a different kind of state, they couldn't come back and, you know... In a way, remind people of their of their sort of their own neighbour I mean there is this neighbourliness which you know probably a lot of UKIP people probably quite neighbourly too. And in a way if you if you if you if you touch on that and give it some political expression and remind people of their capacities, their capacities to to run their families, to organise their lives and and, and in, in some sense validate that in a politics of of participation. You know, I, I don't know, that was completely lacking.
0: Hmm. Okay, well, thank you, um, everyone. It's time, I think, for us to open it up um, to, to you, the audience. Um, ne- needless to say, I, I don't think it'll work if we expect each of our panellists to answer each question. So I'm, I'm going to take questions, I might start grouping them, and I might end up directing them to particular panellists just to make sure that we get a good number of questions in. So, um, could I start with the, um, the man in the blue uh, sweater, blue shirt? Could you just say who you are and where you're from, um, because of the event's being recorded.
4: Yeah, so my name is Victor. Um, I study here at LSE and I'm from Sweden. And um, I'm a member of the uh, (laughs) Swedish Labour Party. I I just want to tell you that you you might not want it to be like uh, it is in Sweden right now. We had eight years of a right-wing government and it changed quite a lot. But my question is, uh, does someone relate to Sweden and I think to European social democracy generally? So we've been hearing here that the Labour Party lacked a story. um, But it seems like they tried to formulate a story at times. Uh, Miliband, for example, had an idea of, of do labor, try to sort of speak to um, what he thought were conservative working class voters um, and uh, he talked about inequality, uh, hum- human, humane capitalism, whatever term he used. But it seems to me that what happens uh, each time social democracy in Europe tries to form their own story is that they're stricken especially close to election time by this anxiety about not winning elections. And what happens then is that they revert to a discourse which very much is on the theme of fiscal responsibility. And I think that often sort of un, undoes what they tried to do before. They, it undoes the story they tried to formulate. And I feel like this is what happened with Miliband as well this time. So, you know, he tried to formulate all of these stories, but um, then when the election came close, uh, he was stricken by this social democratic anxiety and started talking about uh, balancing the budget. Um, So, do you agree that that's a problem, and what do you think should be done in that case? Okay,
0: Um, I'm going to. There's clearly many, many questions. So, uh, uh, since you didn't direct it at anyone, I might direct that at at Polly. But if you can just hold on for a sec, and I'll just take um, two other questions. Um, The the woman with the blonde hair in the third row. Um, Hang on, wait, wait for the thing, and say who you are and where you're from.
5: Um, I'm a German filmmaker, so I feel very much as an European immigrant, and I felt that uh, the Tories and UKIP hijacked the discussion about immigration and that Labour very reluctantly wanted to talk about the fear of the other. And I was wondering if that is still going on and if this is something you obviously have to change uh, as a Labour party or if the left has to change that, particularly since now, uh, it, EU referendum is um, coming very close
0: Okay, thank you um, John, maybe if you could take take yeah. that um, and uh, let's see um, someone at the back who's the man with the newspaper Yeah, my name is Keith Saunders I live in Wimbledon I voted Tory this time, regrettably but as far as I'm concerned as uh, a brave and- gentleman <laughs> Ed Miliband didn't have the charisma to look like a prime minister, and I'm surprised that the Labour Party didn't oust him a year before the election.
2: Would it have changed your vote? Sorry? Would it have changed your vote? If David, if so, Miliband, would no, if
0: David Miliband would have been leader, um, I might have sort of um, thought about changing it then,
1: yes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well um, <laughs> I, yeah, I it. think I think we all want to go
0: that one yeah, yeah, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> um, Holly, could you just start addressing the the first question and um,
2: yes uh, social democratic panic and anxiety um, absolutely understand what you say, but there always has to be this balance between social conscience and fiscal responsibility. Uh, That is the nature of the game. And getting it right is very difficult. And you're always going to have some people on the left saying, I really hate you for talking about all this deficit reduction. On the other hand, this time, rather more people on the right saying, I don't trust you with the economy. And um, it's, it's a very hard bind to be in. But I don't think you can afford to say... I do not we'll talk about the deficit. He did leave it out of his speech, and it didn 't go awfully well, <laughs> as I can remember. Uh, it was regarded you know and maybe that 's the moment at which they might have thought again about uh, leadership i think um, I think it's uh, you know I think social democracy is a difficult balancing act because it 's not full on socialism um, it is about ab- ab- about social justice. But um, it does always always teeter on the edge of not being regarded as trustworthy. I mean, the history of the last 100 years has been essentially a Tory history, occasionally punctuated by a social democratic government. And, um, you know, that balance is important. And it didn't work this time, and it's hard to know why not. But I think basically because, you know, you maxed out the credit card and you crashed the car, we're not giving the keys back, was just such powerful propaganda that when Ed Miliband tried to make the rather more sophisticated and difficult uh, argument, and the Keynesian argument really is the paradox of thrift, very hard to get across, there was just a gasp in the audience and they stopped listening when he said, no, we didn't. That was it. Um, It's really rolling stones uphill to make the more sophisticated Keynesian case.
0: Okay, anti-immigrant politics
1: in the referendum, Professor Curtis. Um. The truth is that immigration is a difficult issue for political parties. Um, you have to remember you're talking about a country that, for much of the second half of the 20th century, experienced net outward migration, and we there and even despite you know the, uh, t- taking in um, a fair population from um, the Commonwealth, the first decade of the 21st century. Did see us experience unusually high levels of net inward migration of the kind that we're not that we were not necessarily used to, and of course um, that in part at least can be traced, ironically, to us being more Europhile than most of Europe, and opening up the borders in 2004 earlier uh, to, to the uh, new countries from Eastern and Central Europe earlier than most other countries, apart from Sweden and Ireland. Um, Having doing so on the basis that not many people, I mean, who would want to come here? I mean, it's not. And um, of course, we had very, very high levels of migration. And the truth is that ever since, you know, Labour Party have said, mm, "Yeah, well, we're not quite sure it's what we intend." And of course, if you have, I mean, it, it, it's fine if you have high levels of network inward migration, and the economy doesn't tank. But the tanking of the economy in 2008 then adds to the problem. And, I mean, here we kind of come into a slightly wider issue that we shouldn't have time to talk about, which is, you know, the challenges that um, globalised capitalism creates, including the challenges it creates for a social democratic party, because the truth is that... You know, there is a section of our society which benefits beautifully from globalised capitalism. You know, they speak three languages. They've got six degrees. They can work in Paris, Berlin, Barcelona. The EU is... Study at the London School of Economics. (laughs) Indeed. The, the, The EU is a wonderful institution, all right? But contrarily, if you are a hotel worker in Margate and you see lots of Eastern Europeans coming, also wanting to work as hotel workers at Margate, don't be surprised that you think A, all these guys turning up means that it's difficult for me to get a wage rise, and B also being Margate being culturally challenged all of a sudden by the arrival of a migrant population, which to places that are not used to it. So that, that's the reason why you know why we have this issue, um, and you know UKIP exploited it brilliantly. UKIP made this fun- brilliantly made the link between Europe, immigration. And thereby tapped into the, a, a certain section of predominantly working-class small business population that were culturally, felt culturally and economically challenged by, by migration, and it's not going to go away. Uh, it's not going to go uh, uh, any time soon because. immigration will be one of the central issues of the European referendum debate because UKIP are absolutely right. There is no way that the UK can control immigration so long as it remains a member of the European Union. And if you, you either have to defend that situation... Or be uh, yeah, upset about it. Uh, can I go back to Keith? Because ask
2: to say say some more about that. It's so important. How should the argument be put then during the referendum? If immigration is what it's really going to be. about Well, okay. Here,
1: here, 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 here Polly. I think herein lies a real fundamental problem for social democratic parties, which is can they come up to a response? To people's concerns with globalised capitalism that makes people feel that they're still on their side. Because, it, see, one of the problems, it seems one of the fundamental problems we face is that the, the answer of social democracy to capitalism is we will tame it. And that, uh, A, we will tame it, and B, that actually, gradually, it generates the knowledge economy and we can all have nice middle class jobs, and thereby, as a result, actually, it, it profits our folk. The problem is, of course, John Goldthorpe is turning us social mobility has stopped... The hotel worker in Margate says, I don't see how globalized capitalism is helping me. And you've seen this with, uh, particularly with, obviously, with PASOK in Greece, to some degree now what's going on in Spain. There's potentially a real challenge here that people who are, as it were, the less well-off sections of our society no longer necessarily believe that the Social Democratic Party in their country are capable of articulating their position. That's partly to do with immigration. It's partly to do with declining living standards, etc. But there's potentially a really fundamental challenge here, which is, do people feel that Labour is actually a party that is willing and able to defend our interests in a time of relatively little economic growth and relatively high, high levels of inward migration? OK. Can thought- I, I, I want to go back to the gentleman. I'll well, we'll just make it really very, quick. Very quickly. Right. Look, I mean, two points. I mean, you're absolutely right about charisma. OK. And ask yourself a question. Which of the possible aspirant leaders of the Labour Party has charisma? And there is a more, you know, one of the reasons why we are where we are is that Salmond and Sturgeon have it. Farage has it. Boris has it. David doesn't. Ed didn't have it. And virtually nobody on the front benches of the House of Commons had it in the last Parliament. And therein again lies one of the kind of potential reasons why it's difficult for either Conservative or Labour to actually get much enthusiasm for. But on David Miliband, can I suggest you look at Eric Joyce's website? He has recently posted a very frank appraisal of the... um, Emotional uh, Empathies of David Miliband, which I recommend that you read.
0: All right. Um, I'm not sure that Eric Joyce on emotional empathies is. Um, um, now, look, I want to take some people from up the front, and I, I do urge people to be concise because we want to get a lot of questions in. Can I have the woman at the, at the very back um, just wave your arm around and don't forget to say who you are and where you're from. And if you would like to direct the question to an individual, say so.
4: My name is Silke Breimer. I'm from the German Friedrich Ebert Foundation in London. I have a question to John Curtis.
3: Were the polls wrong or did we simply not understand them? Was it the shy Tory or what was it?
0: Okay. And now can we have this gentleman in the middle here with... I think you've got glasses on.
4: Thanks. My name is Petros, and uh, I think this question goes to Professor Curtis. Um, Oh, dear. (laughs) Uh, I might change the direction of that question, but carry on. (laughs) Okay. Um, Very quickly, um, could you explain the dynamic of Lib Dem, of conservatives getting Lib Dem supporters? Because I have a hard time of kind of buying that um, story. And the second part is, I, I was hoping you can explore it a little bit more as to how labor lost so badly in England and Wales. For Scotland, it kind of makes sense to me, as being a Canadian, you know, we had the Bloc Québécois, and you know, I, I kind of understand that dynamic, but for England and Wales, I think that was more shocking to me, because even with the SNP, Labour would have been something like 40 seats behind the Conservatives, so um, if you can kind of explore that a little bit more, that would have been better.
0: Okay, well that, that is a Professor Curtis question, um, and this, uh, the woman with the glasses in the front, please, front row at the top.
5: Thanks. Um, hi, I'm Olivia, an MA student from SOAS. I've got two things. One of them is not a question. It's just a response to Curtis. From what I've read, anti-immigration sentiment is highest in areas of the lowest migration into them, and therefore your analysis is somewhat flawed. But that's, I mean, Take it I it away
0: from your mouth. But, you're, you're, you're but
5: beyond that, and this is to the whole panel, um, <laughs> I, I mean, I just really objected to the whole analysis. No, the point is, but, is that
0: um, you're, you're very, you're speaking too close to the microphone. Oh,
5: okay. Does this help? I really objected to the analysis Um, okay uh, but the actual question is to the panel as a whole Um, Beyond Hillary, I felt like the panel conflated the left with Labour, and I mean the turnout in this election was pitiful again, and again the turnout wasn't high for Labour, as has been borne out through these kind of discussions and are the result. How can we conflate the Labour continually with the left when electoral politics is no longer representing clearly the bulk of the population and when we're talking about ideas of authenticity and representation in politics as the SNP and UKIP continually speak? speak to. So I'd really like someone to or all of you to talk to this idea of the left going far beyond Labour and how Labour either responds or or doesn't to that.
0: Okay. Um, so can can we have um, Professor Curtis on, on the first two and then just quick comments from Hillary and Polly about the last
1: um, one of my, for my sins I'm president of the British Polling Council, so I'm afraid I was the person who was 630 on Friday morning quickly realised that we did need to inquire into the opinion polls. Um, so I don't want to say a great deal, having, having instigated that. Um, I mean, either there was a su- such a late swing that even Peter Kellner couldn't pick it up on the day, or there are issues with the polls. I mean, anybody who knows about how polling is done these days, it's, it's no longer the case that all the polls simply do is to interview people and find out how many Tories and how many Labour and how many Democrats there are and add them up and tell you how many there were. Uh, it's long been accepted within the polling industry that they don't necessarily get representative samples. And there is an awful lot of weighting, modelling, filtering, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, designed to try and turn the um, unrepresentative samples into representative ones. And therein may lie many of the problems. Um, to clarify two points that came out of two, of, of, of two, two things, I mean. Um, I wasn't saying that that Liberal Democrat voters had gone to Conservative. What I said is the Conservative Party won Liberal Democrat seats. Those two things don't necessarily go together. It's perfectly clear that that one of the foundations of Labour's hopes ever was that fact that about a third of Liberal Democrat voters in 2010 were switching to Labour. But if Liberal Democrats switch to Labour in places like Cornwall and Devon, that means curtains for the local Liberal Democrat MP um equally on migration by the way of course it's always true that uh, the responses to the attitudes towards migration are more liberal in places that already had migration london is relatively liberal on this subject because it has a much more ethnically diverse population than the rest of the uk actually however the parts of the uk which have had in most inward migration from eastern europe which are, are indeed east anglia and lincolnshire were some of the, amongst the places where ukip did best um why did labour lost? well i mean i kind of said a a little bit and i kind of invite you to i mean i i'm i think i'm going to go back and reread my, I, one of the things i do is i, I write a, uh, an article once every quarter for juncture which is ippr's magazine and they usually set me the challenge of you know what does labor need to do and what are labor's problems etc etc and i i mean the, the truth is many of us offered freely to labor party lots of advice about what it needed to do um but for the most part you know it wasn't taken but i think. I, 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 I will just say one really simple thing, all right? You can get terribly exercised, and I think it's, it's very often true that, in order, that discussions on the left get very, very concerned about ideology. But that actually, what above all, the two crucial things that you have to have in the first place is you have to have competence and you have to have trust, right people have to think that you're able capable of running the country and they think they have to have a degree of trust in what you say so i mean for example just before this session i had a discussion with a a journalist about what went wrong with the democrats and i said look it's terribly simple nobody believed a word they said after tuition fees all right, and he said, "Oh, it's, 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 not, it's not the decline of liberalism." And I said, "No, it's nothing to do with the decline of liberalism. Actually, in many respects, Britain is a more liberal country now than it's ever been. The problem is the vehicle that supposedly conveyed the ideology of liberalism was destroyed by uh, the, the decision on tuition fees. You say one thing and do another in politics. Hey, that's what happens. And so I think, I think the, the first thing, above all, you know, Labour has to worry about. It has to worry about competence. It has to worry about trust. And yes, indeed, it does have to worry about charisma." I e finding somebody who is actually capable of coming up with a vision, or at least finding someone who can give them a vision, and is then capable of conveying it. And I would argue that's probably much more important than whether or not the Labour Party tax the left to the right or whatever. That's the central nub of Labour's problem. Okay, thank you, um, Hillary. Yeah,
0: well, it's up to you. You right, choose.
2: No, I totally agree with what you say about charisma. I think, as I said before, you know, it is a presidential system and it really, really, really matters. Um, on the question of authenticity, you're absolutely right. But we are where we are. Uh, you know, is, is the left the same as Labour? No, of course it isn't necessarily. But we have an electoral system still that absolutely drives in that direction. Uh, you know, green votes are mostly wasted. I have always been passionately in favour of PR. And although, as I said, it wouldn't have enormously changed the results as to who was in the government this time, in the end, it allows insurgent parties to come in. It would allow the Greens to grow or a Tusk to grow or other parties to grow over time. You wouldn't have votes thrown away. And then you would have a coalition on the left or on the right of the number of smaller parties where people could really express their views and the coalition would have to be weighted according to the views expressed of different degrees of leftness or rightness. And that seems to me the way to go forward. We are not going to go there. Not for the next five years we're not. This government would not touch it. They wouldn't even have AV, which actually probably would have helped them a bit. Um, they'd have got UKIP second preferences. Um, and um, So, as we are where we are, I will go on saying and beating my head against the water when it comes to the next election, for God's sakes, vote for the party on the left that will best uh, get you an MP in on the left, or whatever. You know, if you're in Brighton Pavilion, that's green, but that's one. Um, (laughs) Everywhere else, just about Labour. Some places, maybe Lib Dem. That's the way our monstrous system works. And you buck it at your peril, but do let's try and reform it. Okay, Hillary.
3: Okay, I want to answer the charisma thing, but in a way that leads into the question of parties and the left and and the Labour Party. Because actually, I don't think people have charisma. You know, it's not not sort of, if you think about Caroline Lucas before she became leader, or I didn't know Nigel Farage before he became leader, but, um, you know, if you think about, you know, I think it's to do with the party and the support you get and the confidence with which, and the persuasiveness with which you, 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 you conduct yourself. I mean, I think that the thing about Caroline Lucas, the thing about Nagel Farage and actually the thing about Boris and also Ken Livingston is that they were all backed absolutely totally by their parties whereas Ed I mean I find him you know charismatic and persuasive because I'm you know of his sort of you know passion but but you know he wasn't really being backed up by his party his party was constantly arguing against him undermining him you know his own argument his own belief was not really being developed until towards the end, when he began to find quite a, a charismatic voice. But you've got—if you think about who are the charismatic people—it's a problem with the Labour Party because it's this coalition. Its leaders are, are, are often not the leaders that are there because of their passions and beliefs, but because of their ability to 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 wheel and deal and 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 sort of manipulate. So Harold Wilson. You know, he wasn't charismatic. The charismatic person of that era was Nye Bevan. You know, the, think about Tony Benn. He was charismatic. Ken Livingstone was charismatic because he had his own platform, you know, with, with London, just as Boris has. So it is to do with our party system, in a way, that leaders of the Labour
2: Party tend to be the product of, of all kinds of sort of deals and so on. And, and what you're really saying is people who don't have parties are just mavericks out there and lovely to be a party of one like Caroline Lucas. You can say what you like. Ken Livingston off the leash, Boris off the leash, Nigel Farage off the leash. It's a wonderful freedom. It makes them authentic. They can speak as they like, but they are not speaking for a mass collectivity who have come together, as you say, as a coalition drawing up a policy together. That is a much harder thing to lead. But if you want to be government, you need to lead a large coalition. Well, but if you think about the Green
3: Party i went I did actually canvass for caroline lucas and it 's a very it is it's a movement I mean it is a, a movement but it 's one that's that 's got a kind of agreement, and they all support her and give her that confidence so when she speaks she 's speaking coming from meetings and 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 a daily interaction with her activists that is saying. Mm-hmm go for it, Caroline, you know, you're there, you you know, backing her argument. I mean, you know in yourself, you know, you're only confident when you've got a sort of support around you, you know, in your words of being not echoed but kind of at least supported and you can feel self-confident. So I think there is a huge problem. I mean, I think we're agreed about maybe not the uh, voting with your, um, you know, the clothes peg on your, no, but on the importance of, PR, because I just think that, you know, the Labour Party, it means that there's there's such a coalition that the left, and that means left ideas, are kind of imprisoned and sort of contained. So they're never argued out. So in a way, that's why the party never has a very clear sort of story, because, you know, everything is is sort of... Well, Prism is always a distorting kind of um, uh, lens, and and everything is distorted by... the. uh, kind of tactical alliances that have to be made to win your position so there's no real sort of intellectual argument or learning, learning from practical experiences and so you know just for almost the health of our democracy we have to have beyond, I think I'm not quite so, okay I don't know what will happen in the next five years but I do think that the whole dynamic in Scotland is going to lead to A kind of imperative to rethink the constitution, and we have to build. I know a lot of people have been saying this, so I feel a bit of a kind of you know record going round. But you know there, there is a movement, there is a frustration about our political system, which linked to your point about trust, but it's much deeper than that. And I think we have to get behind that that kind of movement for constitutional reform which has now got a real you know it's a real it's on the agenda everybody i don't know i find you know my plumber or you know, everybody's talking about proportional representation which is kind of amazing it's now a, it's not the chattering classes it's it's the working classes that are talking about the need for proportional representation let's let's think imaginatively about how we how we bring about those changes so did
0: your plan right. vote for well, you Kit, then <laughs> hang on a minute i think we no, we're going to run we're really going to run out of time we've just had two rounds of questions I I aspired to four. We must at least have three. Um, Can I just uh, get an indication of of people who are interested in asking a question? So can I have um, this this woman in the third row at the top first of all and then we'll come to the gentleman with his hand up at the very back and uh, lastly this person with the yellow shirt here.
5: Hi, um, I'm Marin, I'm from Ireland, um, and I disagree with you about what you said about charisma. I think Choco Minna has a lot of charisma, and I was just wondering who
3: you all think um, would be the best choice of leader to secure a Labour victory in five years' time.
0: All right, well, um, perhaps we just, uh, everyone, that's obviously a question to everyone, but we would have to have a short answer to that. Who, who's the, Yes.
1: My name's Robert Dow, and I live in London, have done since the early 70s. I want to know whether the left think yet that they should fundamentally rethink their perspective on taxation.
2: Uh, uh, can you be a bit more specific?
1: Well, Miss um, Toynbee, yes, I can. You've written very eloquently in The Guardian about land value taxation.
2: Ah, oh. <laughs> <laughs> You're a land value man,
0: right? Okay. Okay, well we've, we've got an uh, an answerer to that question. Um
5: yes. Hi, my name is Pooja and I'm an, I'm an architect and I work in the public realm and my question is probably more pointed towards Hillary your idea of participation. I was wondering what you think we as people as a collective on the left can do as opposed to necessarily the Labour Party or the Green Party because um two things I feel like Uh, this sort of energy you speak of is very sort of hackney Brighton urban sort of centric and also any protest at the moment seems like it's a sore loser vibe
0: okay thank you I'm actually going to take a a fourth question is is there someone who would like to ask a question to John Curtis um okay um, (laughs) don't
1: don't choose that don't choose that man there this man over here
0: (laughs) 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 a very simple Okay, well, at the very least, you must wait for the microphone, and uh, your overruling the chair has been noted.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> right, very quickly, actually, name, I tweet, sorry, Ivor Gaber, University of Sussex, um, and former friend of John Curtis. Um, LAUGHTER I, tw- I tweeted that your, 12,
3: your, your, your prediction or whatever, the, your assessment that Labor needed to be 12% ahead to get a majority next time round. And my, my Twitter followers all asked me to ask you, is that before or after redistribution? Okay.
0: Okay. So um, if, if we could deal with it in this way, could we start with the land tax, then with the participation, then with the redistribution, and just at the end, in a very rapid-fire way, ask, answer the first question about um, who you would go for.
2: Yep. Property tax is the great big bugbear of the entire system. It's where wealth is accumulating, where wealth is undertaxed. Labour made a small gesture, tiny gesture in that direction with the mansion tax, which was just to say... I think this is the direction we're going in, but it was only going to affect some 97,000 properties, I think, most of them in London and close to London. Um, Of course, a land value tax makes a lot more sense in every possible way. Right incentives uh, captures the value that's added if you build tube stations or whatever. Are we going anywhere near it? I don't think so. Um, if we can't even revalue, count the existing unfair council tax and make it a little fairer with the extra bans that uh, hasn't been revalued since 1991, 1992, thereabouts, um, if, we, if, if neither Labour nor Conservatives, who all know they should do it, dare touch it because of the explosion of rage at any kind of property taxation, I don't think it's going to happen. I think we should go on fighting for it. I would like to see it in my lifetime, but I somehow doubt it. Our property fixation is at the wicked heart of everything that's wrong with our economy too. But there it is. Mm. Thank you.
3: Yeah, well, I was brought up uh, on Henry George, you know, the great sort of... No, I thought that was the question. ...advocate of uh, land, well, public ownership of land, Land, uh, God gave the land... To the people. So I very much agree with any kind of serious addressing of the you know, attempt to equalize um, the question, the ownership of land, to tax it or to bring it into public ownership. Um, I don't know, I, the other thing about tax, apart from you know, wealth tax and inheritance tax and a much more serious approach to um, tax evasion of corporations, I, I do think this whole issue, which got very mocked of pre. What was it called? Distribution. Pre-production?
2: Pre-distribution.
3: Pre-distribution. Oh, yeah. on, yeah. Is it, I don't know, it was never really explained, but it seems to me it's really about economic democracy. It's really about, you know, actually, you know, challenging in a way, moving beyond the the normal social democratic formula of, you know, you leave capitalism to produce the wealth and then, you, you know, the government redistributes it to actually saying, no, hang on a minute, let's look at the fundamental equalities involved in production. And this also relates to the point about globalization. And it also relates actually to constitutional reform because I don't think you can have that um, pre-distribution approach. You can't really have economic democracy unless you have much more devolved forms of government because I don't think it can be brought about by a sort of highly centralised um, state of a very big country. You need, in a way, a combination of levels. You need the action at the continental level to kind of control corporate power, but then you need forms of um, investment that are, that are public you know, invest, uh, national enterprise boards, but but they need to be much more regional. They must must be close to the knowledge of the producers, which means the the workers and managers as much as the the actual sort of shareholders. So I think the whole idea of economic democracy needs to be brought back to the centre of politics and needs to be developed to address global corporate power. Which you know, there's, I think there's an appetite for that. It's there in the kind of you know, social entrepreneurship I was talking about earlier, and in the deep hostility to corporate power, but it needs to be turned into um, some kind of economic programme. And I think they're the unions. We haven't talked about the unions, but honestly, I think the unions, you know, they they need to be part of any sort of aspirational social movement. But they've got to they've got to open up, and the rest of us have got to be. Responsive and positive to where they are opening up because there are signs, but they're, they're not strong enough. But that's a force,
0: okay? Thank you, and uh, I hope that addresses at least some of the questions about participation. Um, John,
1: um, uh, the, the answer is- to this, the, the simple answer to your question, Iva, is that it is before redistribution, but there's a more complicated answer because you know, first past the post is a complicated system. I've played around with, um, what might have happened and what would be required under the new boundaries. Um, it certainly makes it easier for the Conservatives to get a majority. It certainly would make it more difficult for Labour to be the largest party. It won't necessarily make it more difficult for Labour to win a majority itself. Because, But, but the, here comes a, cruci- here comes a cru- crucial decision the government has to make. If, if the Tories don't do anything, the legislation is all already in place to redistribute the next House of Commons to a 600 seat House of Commons but and if that is done one of the consequences of reducing the size of the House of Commons is that it increases the winner's bonus and therefore actually it may make it easier for both Tory and Labour to win an overall majority right so it's something more complicated than the yes no I would not be surprised however if some a lot of Tory backbenchers will say you know what Cutting the size out of the commons, that wasn't such a good idea after all. <laughs> Um, uh, it, Dave, if you want us to be nice to you in the next two years, you need to change that bill That would have to happen fairly quick because the boundary commissions are required to start work early next year. So watch to see whether or not we get. The- now, if if the if the if we go back to 650, and therefore we get a much less radical redistribution, um, life's going to be t- it's still going to be tough for Labour. On the best choice for Labour Party, well, um, put it like this: If I were a member of Labour Party, which I assure you I am not, um, if I were, um, I would be in a position of saying, well, you all of you have to convince me because at the moment I, I either know nothing about you or what I have seen of you does not necessarily convince me that you have the necessary leadership qualities. But, of course, the contest will be the occasion that creates the opportunity for them to demonstrate those qualities. But I, at the moment at least, I'm not clear that there is anybody on the Labour front bench whom you go, yes obviously.
0: Okay, and that perhaps sets a good precedent, because I'm not sure that we're really conducting that poll here tonight, but the question of qualities may be of more interest.
2: Yep, I hope that they all get grilled and grilled to pieces. I hope they get Paxman and Andrew neild and Andrew Marr in the pro course so that we can see who can really stand up to it. I think there should be good, you know, live stream hustings in which they are thoroughly knocked all over the place by the people who will when it comes to an election, and then we might see who's made of what, because as John says, we don't know. I have a very very good recommendation. I want a job share between uh, Nicola Sturgeon and Caroline Lucas, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
3: I'd, I'd endorse that. And I also think that, well, I don't feel a great... I don't lose sleep of the Labour Party, so, but I do think it needs to... I'd like to see a, a, a mass party that's truly got roots, and I think it's got to, in a way change its character. It's got to be a party that's about not just preparing for elections, but also organising working-class people. I mean, you know, I think it's got to recognise this sort of incredible fragmentation, the fact that Thatcher has succeeded. She didn't succeed in changing values. That might have been Blair, but she and he succeeded in in, in a sort of destruction of working-class sort of collectivities. Where they, I mean, the miners' strike obviously was the most Dramatic. So there's been a real sort of fragmentation of all those forms of, of, of collectivity that were important as a kind of foundation of the Labour Party, and that the original Labour Party was about organising, you know, organising on the ground, helping to organise tenants' groups, trades councils, and I think it's got to get back to that sort of. Basic organising, organising precarious workers. I mean, there's lots of networks developing to do that, but I think the Labour Party could be much more part of that process, providing resources, providing voices as councillors and so on to that reorganisation of society. Because without that, you know, bedrock of of associational culture, you know, I don't think they've got you know the chance to come back. That's got to be fundamental to not just Winning, I don't know about winning Scotland, because I think you know, Scotland has got a different... We've got to think about a different, a different country, a different UK, to be honest. I think we're not going to see the rebuilding of the Labour Party as a sort of UK-wide party. It's, it's got to think federally in a much more radical way.
0: Okay. Um, I just want to make a couple of announcements and then uh, wind up with a a couple of general comments. So um, some of you have the brochure, but some of you don't. Our next event is on the 20th of May with Robin Blackburn talking about uh, launching a collection of Ralph Miliband's essays, Class War Conservatism, um, unfortunately a somewhat prescient title. And then on the 1st of June, we have former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd talking about the rise of China and the enduring power of the United States. But what I wanted to say in conclusion is that um, I, I do hope you've got something out of our event today. I mean, we've heard about the importance of trying to characterise what kind of a country Britain should be. We've heard about the enduring importance and the growing importance of issues of equality and inequality. And we've heard an analysis of the different kinds of aspiration and the need for a social movement to pursue them, the different kinds of aspiration that might be pursued. Can you just end by joining me in thanking our panel, Polly Toynbee.
5: you.